Well, hey, everybody, welcome to episode 194 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we also have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All righty. What do you want to say about this uh, Steve Jobs comment that last week I highlighted the fact that you said that Steve Jobs got grumpy about about it. You were talking about iTunes in general, right? I mean, what did you, what did you mean by that? Yeah, do you, do you want to talk about your fact check? Because I was making the statement that um, iTunes has been on Windows since just about forever, mm-hmm. um, even though Steve Jobs was grumpy about, about that. And he basically didn't want that to happen. He wanted it to be Mac exclusive. And according to the legends, um, and as far as we know, there are folks at all levels who tried to convince him, no, 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 this is like a really good idea. You know, let's get people to have iTunes um, and then see if we can get them over to Mac, but but not sure, make yeah. things Mac exclusive because then we won't be able to grow um, with the small market share that they had. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, like we were just talking before the show, and I'll probably put some stuff in the, in the after show, but Apple was struggling for a number of years. In fact, they were on the auction block for like, I, I think, $500 million at one point even. I think uh, Oracle or somebody or Sun was going to buy them at one point back in and before the iMac came out. And we're going to talk about the iMac in a little bit uh, because it's it's a significant date. Yeah, there's, there was an announcement that Steve Jobs made at um, at one of the Macworlds, I think, uh, where I've, there's a picture of him standing uh, in front of a screen where it says, Hell froze over. So I guess the, whoever, if it was Jobs or whoever was thinking that, that it would never go over to, it would be Mac exclusive, they finally did release iTunes on Windows. And I remember um, being, I was a little taken back by it, if, to be honest with you, at, at the time, right? But, um, and there's a poster here that's in this, this article that I've got in the show notes. It was October 16, 2000. 2003, when hell froze over and Apple reduced, introduced uh, iTunes for Windows. And that was a significant date because around, so shortly after that, people started buying iPods all over the place. And people, there was an expression people would say, you'd see them on talk shows or, you know, f- uh, famous people, people would say, what's on your iPod? And they would talk about, you know, whatever music they had on their iPod. And, and that certainly helped Apple, the sales of the iPod certainly helped Apple find a new sort of market. And of course, we all know that the iPod led to the iPhone as well, right? So, which of course is, you know, put Apple way over the top, right? Yeah. You could argue that the iPod kind of saved Apple. I mean, you could also argue that it was the iMac that did that, but really it was, you know, Apple, Apple was considered a really kind of a niche, almost second tier computer company, even after the iMac compared to all the Windows that were out there. And it was, it was, it was really only when the iPod came out and was a big hit that Apple became more of the consumer electronics company that it is now. True. And I mean, at the time, Apple had like three, 3% 3% or 4% market share, like it says here in the article that, you know, it opened the iPod up to 97% of the people out yeah. there who had PCs, right? right so right. that was a huge thing, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, there's an interesting uh, not safe for work uh, quote here from uh, between uh, what a, con- a conversation between Steve Jobs and Phil Schiller said. Phil Schiller said, Phil Schiller and I said, we're going to do it. Who's this talking? I wonder. I think it was Phil Schiller and John Rubenstein who were... Um, as uh, senior vice president of marketing and senior vice president of hardware engineering, respectively. Right. Yeah. And you were saying that, yeah, you're exactly what you were just saying. Steve wanted to keep things on exclusively Mac and John and Phil wanted, saw that the value is spreading to the PCs, right? Yes. And, and jobs basically says, F you guys do whatever you want. <laughs> you're going to be responsible and stormed out of the room. Yeah. Which was probably his way of being like, I know you're Grumpy. right, <laughs> but I really hate the fact that you're right. And I don't want to do this, but I'm not stopping it. Right. Critically, right. Not right. Stopping it from happening. Right. Yeah. 
Interesting stuff, yeah. All right, so Mark, you have a bit of a follow-up here about UI Property Animator. I was, I was just trying to look at it before the show here, but what have you got? For yeah, us, Mark? so so if you remember last week, uh, we had uh, some follow-up. Ask MTJC was asking us if, if we knew anything about that, if we had used it, and we all pretty much had said no, we hadn't. So this week I did, uh, and it turns out it's awesome. I, I was able to use it for an, an animation, an animation that was actually causing me a lot of problems with timing uh, because it was being triggered. The, the, this particular animation is triggered by a whole bunch of different events that can come in asynchronously, uh, and because I was using the uh, you know the duration you know completion block based animations. Uh, uh, just getting the timing right was really, really tough. I had to have all sorts of, of flags set, you know, is the animation in progress or should I show the animation and setting all these things just to prevent it from happen- getting called a second time if, if two events came in quick, you know, quickly, one after the other, and, you know, they'd interfere with each other. But now with UI View Property Animator, it's trivially easy to do that kind of stuff because because it's an object. Instead of, instead of you just kicking off this asynchronous call and, and waiting for it to complete, uh, you actually have an object that you can you can hit, deal with, and so it's real simple. That if you if you only want this animation to show be showing one once at a time, and you want to have control over when you update it or turn it off or do anything with it, well, you just access you just have a property uh, w- which is set to your instance of the UI view property animator, and you can do things like start stop uh, the animation. You can you can set the set the object to nil, and then the animation is just gone. Uh, and and just all the things that you normally will do with with an object, you can now do with an animation, and it's it's amazing. I can't believe I waited this long to start using it. So thank you to uh, to the person who sent that tweet last week asking us about it because it, it inspired me to take a look at it. And I, I, I can honestly say I think it's going to change the way I do animations forever on iOS. Nice, it's a great thing. So so it came out in iOS ten. Do you know if is there any part of it that's backwardly compatible? If people are still supporting nine for uh it, it is not backward compatible to before nine so you'll have to have you'll have to use the old types of uh methods uh yeah animate that. with duration yeah 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 but it, i mean it works almost the same way except that instead of just you know it's basically a class method the old way was a class method on ui view right so it's a ui view animate with blah uh now you just create this object uh and has all the same things it has a duration and you can even have it you know you can set delays and and options and all that kind of stuff, all the same kind of stuff, except you create an object first and then tell that object to start animating. So very, right. very similar. Uh, you know, it's it, it will seem very familiar if you use the other ones. Um, real easy to use and real easy to switch. So yeah, I don't see any reason, except for the back compatibility, I don't see any reason to go back to the old ones anymore. And do you just like add, like I see this add animations um, method here, do you just add, do you stack them in or just pile them into your, uh, your object? Well, if you want to have multiple animations on the same on the same uh, uh, element on the screen, yeah, you would do it that way. But if you want consecutive ones, there's a completion block, and, and you kind of do that the same way, uh, where you you chain them together in the same way you had the old ones. So you'd have in the completion block of one animation, you you trigger the next, you start the next animation. Uh, and so this was actually the source of the issue I was having with the, where the timing was was tough because I had multiple chained animations, and the the animation may or may not have been interrupted or needed to be interrupted in the middle 
file somewhere. So I would have to you know, put in all sorts of checks every time there's a completion, every time an animation completed, I'd have to check, do I really want to start the next one or do I want to stop? Did, did I get the message to stop, signal to stop that animation? Right, right. So it was real messy. You know, it was, it was totally, you know, pyramid of doom kind of looking kind of stuff with, with all these completion blocks stacked up. So now hmm. what's, what the, what you can do with this new thing is, so I have an, I have a, for each phase of the animation, uh, in this particular case, there were just, there were four different chained animations. So in each phase, each one of those, I create an object and I just had one property on the, in the class and whichever one was running at the time, I would just set the property to that one. So I can always just, at any time, I can just set that property to nil and the animation stops and it's done and it will never call the completion block. Hmm. So it's real nice. There's also, there's also these, you know, you can also use the stop animation method, uh, but, but stop animation actually calls the completion block. So you want to be a little careful with that, but, but uh, it's, yeah, just super powerful. Cool. So I'm just reading here on, um, I was just looking at Marin's uh, chapters on it. I was looking at, trying to look at it before the show, but there's a cool tool that I don't know if you've ever seen before, Mark, but um, like I, my, I was telling you guys before the show, I started with Adobe Illustrator. So working with Bezier tools was, you know, sort of our shtick back then. Yep. And I was going to paste this into the show notes, but it's in Myron's, t- he talks about this uh, website called cubic-bezier.com. And if you go there, there's like a Bezier curve you can play with. And it's got like, you know, the typical Bezier curve. It's got, you know, two points and the curve runs from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And you've got a couple of anchor points. And as you pull on the anchor points, it actually gives you the Bezier calculation. So you can use that in your animation. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. That neat? Yeah, those are super powerful and, and super hard to get right. So something yeah, like that yeah. is pretty useful. Yeah, just a little, little sidebar. So a little extra yeah. bonus there for the folks who are interested in this. Nice. But yeah, was, so I, what I was looking at as a resource was uh, this version 4.01 of the iOS animations by Tutorials, which we talked about last week, uh, roughly. I mean, I had the version 2, but I hadn't, hadn't downloaded version 4 yet, so I was looking at that. So if you're interested in the book, that's one of them, one of many books I'm sure you can get on this subject. Okay. Yeah, so, and just to honey. follow up to, let's say Mark uh, thanked the person uh, anonymously, but I looked it up from last week. It was Greg Sazidlo, uh, oh, at okay. Boy with Axe on, on Twitter, who had uh, kicked off that conversation last week. Well, thanks, Greg. Yep, the other Greg. The other Greg. The other Greg, yeah. Um, so, Jaime, you have something from Apple here for us? Yeah, I, apparently there's been some sort of uh, problem with disabled microphones during phone calls on the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus models. According to this article, it appears to be models running uh, iOS 11.3 or later, which may uh, disable the microphone during phone calls. And uh, apparently tech support has been telling customers to first unpair or turn off any Bluetooth devices and accessories. And if that doesn't work, um, tech support might also run audio diagnostics, see if it needs uh, like some sort of actual repair or if it's just like a software switch somewhere. Yeah, apparently. I wonder if that's why they brought that 11.31 upgrade out as well. I heard that something like that a while back, right? Could be. The, the article's a little light on details in terms of specifically how you end up in the situation. I, I don't know of anybody who has. Uh, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but I'm hoping that means that it's not super prevalent and it's just some weird combination of things that cause you to get into this error state. Hmm. Well, Carol has a iPhone 7, but I don't know if I've updated it to 11.3 yet, so I'll check it out after the show and see. All right. Yeah, because there was that issue with the screen as well. That we, we, we were trying to figure out why um, why they would have updated it. So Next thing is we were talking last week about Paul Hudson um, and his uh, um, his latest work, he's hacking his, hacking with Swift is his website. He's an author in the, in the UK, but uh, I guess he's going to WWDC this year. Um, I saw something tweeted by him, but I guess for the last 30 days or so, he's been doing this um, a site called uh, Countdown to WWDC. So he's throwing up little quick tutorials on uh, various subjects. So every day he's got a new tutorial um, 
And uh, so currently he's, you know, he's just done different one, how to add CocoaPods to your product, how to refactor your app to add unit tests, you know, how to share structs using boxing, you know, using AV audio, AV audio engine, you know, how to wrap C library in Swift, you know, different things that he's just done as he counts down towards Swift. So that's the website is, uh, yeah, it's uh, backing with Swift, but it's the countdown to WWDC 18. And I'll put a link in the show notes for that. I don't know if you guys have had a look at any of the stuff for, but kind of interesting, uh, little tutorials yeah i've seen some of these on twitter i guess as mm-hmm. as the uh, algorithmic feed randomly decides to show me one of his tweets yeah i guess so the uh server-side swift couture versus vapor and probably saw what's new in swift 4.2 ignoring return values using discordable result yeah. most of these are kind of uh smaller the one that surprised me in terms of like how long it is by comparison to the rest is going to number what is this is 27 27 how to deliver a talk at a programming conference mm. is enormous by comparison to the other um well, countdowns interesting yeah yeah so this is another follow-up piece on the uber car accident that we talked about i guess uh, three four months ago um apparently they're saying that the it may have been caused by software after all um i think we were trying to decide whether it was uh it was the one where the i think some woman stepped out in front of a uber car and got hit right and there was a driver in the car at the time right and, right. right so this is uh oh the paywall great yeah, but I, I think I was reading this on my on my my phone or my uh, my iPad. That I was able because I don't know if I have those enabled there. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Just uh, interesting, uh, interesting little bit of follow up that uh, it wasn't human error per se. It was uh, related to something and some glitch in the software. I, I think the and I haven't read this article, but I think the other recap of that article that I read was that the software was tuned uh, a little bit, I don't know, too aggressively or maybe passively is better. Where it, the software will notice things in the road, like you know, plastic bags yeah, that have yeah, floated onto the road, and you know, the lidar will pick it up and say, "Oh, you know, there's an object there." The software has to decide, like, well, what is that object? Is it something we don't have to worry about? Because it would be not only annoying, but but in some cases dangerous to just stop all of sudden not like on the freeway because a paper bag floated across the uh, the road uh, unfortunately for this poor lady um they they tuned it just a little too softly there and it considered even a human being as being uh, or, or the bike or whatever it was as being something that it could safely ignore um sort of the, the unintended consequences of, of making some of that stuff tunable because you're you're trying to balance all of these different considerations yeah, I saw something the other day actually on I forget what it was. It was I can't remember if it was online or on TV or whatever. But they were showing some technology that used in cars. Oh, it was it was at the Google thing, I think, right at the Google I/O. They said that um, they're able to using machine learning and computer vision. They're able to determine like in a snow in a case where it's snowing, you know, because the road would be covered with with snowflakes, and they would make all kinds of noise in the in the capture that they can use core um, or what they're calling ML Kit or the TensorFlow technology or. Whatever whatever, to actually see what's on the road by, by sort of eliminating the, the snow as a, as a interference, right? Did you see that in the keynote yesterday? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. So more on that later. So wait, um, going on about this. Uh, so, oh, you put this one in. I thought I put this one in. Huh. So yeah, it's the uh, significant anniversary of the Macintosh we were talking about. I mean, what's uh, that got to do with anything? So, oh, I looked up the wrong thing. I was going to look at the, what was the actual date? <laughs> 
Was it the sixth? Well, the, yeah, the sixth of May, sixth of May, two thousand twenty-eighteen. According to Chris Espinoza, who should kind of know. Yeah, we're trying to. Oh, good, this Apple website doesn't guy. load. Let's just pretend. I'm not even going to state a date. How about that? Let's start this part. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so yes, Tim. Um, by the time this recording is, is gone, it'll have come and gone. But we have uh, surpassed the twentieth birthday for the iMac, and we'll have a right. tweet uh, linked in the show notes for those of you driving at home. It's a it's a delightful little uh, Foxtrot comic strip where. Uh, uh, the youngest son, Jason, says he's dressing up as a, as an iMac for Halloween, and his, his brother, Peter, is like, what's so scary about that? He says, I have no floppy drive. Just keeps repeating that, and it's scary. And I have no floppy drive. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that was like a, a, that was was a really a big deal. thing at the time. It really yeah. was. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't I, I, in my drawer, I actually have a VST floppy drive. I posted a picture on Twitter the other day for the 20th anniversary as well, but mm. I didn't have it at the time, but but I think somebody bought it, and I ended up, it ended up in my closet, yeah, every now and then I need to read the stuff off a of floppy drive. I've since converted all my floppies to disk images, but yeah, yeah, it was. I, it was I still sick. have a zip drive. I don't think I have a floppy drive anywhere. Yeah, no, but it's, it used to freak people. I've got some zip zip disks. Maybe you can I can email them, mail them to you, and you can read them to me. Read them for me, right? But it, yeah, it no, still uh, works. I'll, I'm happy to try it. But I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. That. You might get the click of death. Remember that? Yeah, I drives? do remember that. Oh, that was the worst. Yeah, because yeah, those yeah. things weren't cheap. Each one of those discs, they were they were not cheap. And when one yeah. died. It, when you got the click of death, it was dead. Yeah. There was nothing you could do. It was gone. So when I was working in prepress, um, we started out with SideQuest drives. I don't remember if, if you remember those. The, it was a, like a, a hard disk that was removable. Started with mm-hmm. those, and then we moved to zip disk. And then there was Jazz drives, which yeah. were, came back to the hard drive again. They're from iOmega was the name of the company who made those. Yep. I still have an I, a Jazz drive, Jazz interface to FireWire adapter somewhere mm-hmm. in my drawer. But um, we because we were working. In prepress, we were constantly sending sending files around by courier and by cab and by salesperson, whatever. So every desk in our organization, we had like maybe twenty Macs. Every Mac had a zip drive and a Jazz drive and a Cyquest drive, and you know we even had the optical. Remember those optical drives that were supposed to last for ten years or whatever? Mm-hmm. They were super unreliable. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had uh, we 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 lived and died on those things. You know, we'd had we would send you know a, a zip disk in a cab across the city to deliver a piece of artwork. Mm. You know, so that. That's that's the old sneaker net, right? Yeah. So you know, I think I think the controversy about removing the floppy drive was was even bigger than the controversy about removing the headphone jack. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure looking forward, right? I mean, the whole I and iMac was for internet, right? That was like a, a hot new thing to have an, an internet ready yeah. computer, you know, just out of the box. You don't you don't buy a separate modem. You don't buy a PCI card and shove it into your Windows desktop as I did to, to get the interwebs. Yeah, um, there's no step three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, everything changed from boring beige to colorful plastic because of that. Uh, because yeah, of that everybody device. started copying as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we even had the Dalmatian map as well, right? So I have a, an iMac here somewhere. Maybe it's at the cottage. Uh, we have a carbon one left over from the that was like one of the top of the line ones back in the day. Uh, yeah, I, I mean they were they were pretty, and they were they had that sort of retroy sort of deco look to them. You know, very sort of futuristic looking with the translucent plastics. There's a video online of, of Steve Jobs introducing um, the Mac. People have been looking at right. So and yeah, again, it, and it was a sig- significant thing for Apple again because like we were ta- just talking about the iPod, the iMac kind of started the rise of Apple from the 
from the ashes as well, right? It certainly kept them going, um, you know, surviving until they could do the iPod and, and have that, you know, big success. But, you know, just think about how far we've come. And like, I think I saw the, the intro video fairly recently because people probably posted it. Um, it was a 233 megahertz processor on that original iMac. And now yeah, the new yeah. iMac Pro is just like a beast compared to that thing. Yeah, it was how G3, far it's come so, in 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Jaime, but at the time, Jobs, when he came back to Apple and Gil Emilio was the uh, president or whatever at that point in time, CEO, I guess. Um, and Jobs kind of, it wasn't quite a coup, but it was like a coup. And uh, so he didn't really want to commit or apparently didn't want to commit to being the CEO. So he took on the title of ICEO. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. I just remember yeah, him being, uh, will he, won't he? Yeah, uh, for a long time. And then he he also, um, he also took a, a salary of a dollar per year or something like that, ridiculous like that, right? And it's affected it stock. Allegedly, I don't know if that actually... Yeah, allegedly, <laughs> I, quotes, here, yes, uh, I think allegedly backdated stock uh, options. Yeah, of course, right. But the, yeah, the and you know, and I mean, at the time he came back, he, there was very little to lose, right? But, you know, I think over time it kind of grew. And I remember the day, it was one, time, one day he announced that he was dropping the I from his name and it was a huge, huge cheer from the Mac World crowd or the... Yeah, I, I remember when uh, I had a, a, a discussion with someone once when, about whether Apple stock was a buy when it was at six dollars a share back before wow. Mac. Yikes! Yeah, yeah, that's pre-split too. Oh, yeah. Now, <laughs> if you if you loaded up back then, yeah, you'd, you'd be very happy right now. Yeah, well, I had a friend who bought at fourteen dollars and she did pretty well, mm-hmm. but, you know, for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, as not long as you held on to it. Yeah. The problem is when well, stock, I mean, when a yeah, stock is yeah. that low, you tend to you buy it at four, something like fourteen, and you're happy when it goes to twenty and you sell it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't wait for it to go up to, uh, you know, equivalent of over a thousand now. Yeah. Actually, seven, it's, seven it's, split. it's funny. Speaking of stock, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've got Facebook stock. I've just got, a, you know, a couple of shares, like four or five shares or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's you know, quadrupled or whatever in value. But in light of the recent stuff, I want to I want to get rid of it. But I guess I, I guess I have to pay capital gains on the on the profit, right? Yes, you do. Tax? Well, do you if it's to- gone up, yeah. Oh, yeah, you said it's quadrupled. quadrupled yeah, you, yeah. Have you had it more than a year? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, then it's, well, I don't know the laws in Canada, and I am not a tax attorney. You should consult your tax attorney. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. uh, in the U.S., at least, if you if you hold a stock more than a year, it becomes short-term capital gains. As a, uh, sorry, it becomes long-term capital gains as opposed to oh, long-term really? capital gains. And short in the U.S., short-term capital gains are taxed as regular income. So right. whatever oh, your yeah. salary rate is, then you have to pay the short-term capital gains rate is the same as that. But yeah. if you've had it more than a year, it becomes a long-term capital gain, and the rate drops a lot. I think it's something like fifteen percent for long-term, yeah. and it's typically much higher for short term. So yeah. So it pays to hold on to stock if if it's uh if it goes up, but of course then you risk that it'll go down in that time frame. So sure. Yeah. It's always well so in Canada I think it's slightly different. I'm and again I'm not a tax lawyer either, but mm-hmm. I believe it's you pay you pay tax on fifty percent of it, but at your current tax rate. Mm, okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that works out to be better or not. <laughs> yeah, I was just because I was gonna I was gonna buy different stock with it, but it's not like an RSP where you 
you can just switch it from one one uh, thing to another. It's like a, we have a registered uh, retirement um, certificate kind of stocks or whatever that you can move from one place to the other. If you don't take, if you don't actually hand, end up holding the money, you can move it from one one uh, holding to another. But uh-huh. like, not with stocks, I don't think you can do that. So I may be wrong. I guess I should make a phone call and find out. Anywho, um, yeah. So anyway, the, the, I mean, the, yeah, the Mac, the, the iMac was uh, was a huge thing. I remember it, was, it created all the buzz, like I said, right? So the thing to have. Okay. So Jaime, what's this other thing about the uh, getting all the heart feels and stuff? Yeah, this <laughs> this one I even had to ask the other you know hosts on the show. I was like, wait, is this like a real thing? Did anybody else get this? Because I got this weird random email claiming to be this uh, Apple Heart Study in partnership with Stanford Medicine, and I didn't remember anything about that, so I just assumed I was getting fished, as one might wisely do. Um, but no, it turns out it was legit. Went to Apple.com, uh, looked for this bit, and uh, they've got a nice little web page that describes this uh, this research study they're doing with with Stanford Medicine here in the United States. So they're using an, an app on the Apple Watch itself that is uh, designed to figure out if you have an irregular heart rhythm. Um, and it's pretty easy. I mean, I think probably the most difficult thing was, well, downloading the app from the App Store, installing it to the watch, and then going through the rather lengthy questionnaire and personal data filling out a portion, you know, height and weight, gender, do you smoke? Have you ever been pregnant? You know, those sorts of things. And in terms of just using it, it that's pretty simple. All you do is just, just wear your watch and this sort of silently takes that information and analyzes and looks for, you know, hey, do you have a, um, if you have an irregular heart rhythm, it will notify you. So they, they push you very hard towards setting your, your push notifications on and they'll have uh, doctor consultations that you, know, you would want to do like immediately if that sort of thing was detected. But this is pretty neat. I mean, I, I don't expect to have an irregular heart rhythm. Um, I don't really expect to, to like personally gain from this, you know, or hopefully not because hopefully I'm, I'm healthy enough that I don't need that and don't have that situation. But I'm uh, doing my little part to help in this study because they need uh, folks who don't have this sort of problem so they can help understand when they're doing their data analysis, you know, what does it look like to have an irregular heart rhythm? Now, I do remember that they mentioned something about that at the last keynote, um, that they were doing some sort of studies. I remember there was, you know, some cheers from people, but... Yeah, but like at 6 a.m., you know, nearly a year later, I didn't really remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I, what does that say? Um, the Not that about your memory, but how long it took him to get this out the door. But um, <laughs> And of course, we should point out for those of you driving at home, this is only available to people in the United States. That said, I've been using an app on my watch for about a year because I, you know, I my family has a history of heart disease. And um, so there's an app I found out about, again through, again, through Twitter. So one of the people I follow on Twitter called HeartWatch. And um, what the reason I found out about it was that somebody had been using this app and it discovered that it keeps track of your your heart pattern through the day because you're high and a low and a resting um, heart rate as well and if if you have anything any like event or whatever that happens during the day you'll get a notification on your phone and on your your watch to tell you to go and check it out right away and uh, the reason i found out about this is one of the people who was using the app was tweeting from a hospital bed where he was thankful that he was in this app and wearing his watch because it, it warned him about uh, an impending problem he was about to have, right? So mm-hmm. that's called hard watch. So yeah, it's all good stuff, right? This this um, using your apps and stuff to keep track of how things are going, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will give them you know greater mass of statistics uh, rather than having to go through the expense of having you know completely medical grade specialized devices that you then have to go into a doctor's office and get and 
synchronize and that sort of thing. You're using what's essentially commodity hardware here, right? Like certainly an Apple Watch is not cheap, but if you happen to already have one, um, and I guess to, to specify here, I, I found the part that it says, um, the study is open to any U.S. resident who is 22 years or older, uses an iPhone 5S or later with iOS 11, and an Apple Watch Series 1 or later with watchOS 4, and meets other study eligibility criteria, which I don't know what those are, but I made it through. So presumably, uh, you know, I, I was probably like one of the most regular type of patients they could have, I guess. I guess I didn't have any sort of uh, outstanding answers to the questions that they would have said, mm, no, this is not the, the set of folks that we're looking for. So my original watch, my, what do you, I don't forget what you call it, the O series or whatever. <laughs> the OG, the original OG, gangsta. Yeah. yeah. So it, it doesn't qualify, I guess. I don't believe so because it says series one and those would have been like series zero if we were to give them a, right, right. a name. So one, one thing that's interesting is I got the email at my work account, but I didn't get one with my personal account. And I don't own a watch myself, but I do have one at work that I use and it's registered with my Apple ID. So I wonder, well, or I, I guess apparently Apple is is uh, checking what devs, or maybe it's more than devs, actually are using watches and sending, dun, 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 directing dun, dun, dun. this directly to those people. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I no, guess they could see with the Apple just, IDs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you might have also opted in to send them your information to that set of point, right? Like, you know, the, the send diagnostic information to Apple and uh, developers who write the software, right? Yeah. That's one of the questions yeah. that gets asked, right? But I usually do that on my, my personal stuff, too. Excuse me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bo Show, it's all good. I mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, hopefully we can all afford to live longer. But uh, yeah, if we can live longer, it'd be great, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. You again, I mean. Yes, we go from the heart to the brain, specifically the lobes or lobe.ai, which um, I'm sure you could go to lobe.ai. They have a, a wonderful website. Um, I highly recommend you take the 13 or so minutes to review the YouTube video that we have linked in the show notes. It's a really cool tool. The, the whole thing about it is to have this nice, easy to use web interface that's a graphical way to build, as it says here in the tin, build, train, and ship custom deep learning models. And it, it's pretty amazing. So we've, we've talked about the fact that these, these different models tend to be based on, you know, take some input, deliver some output, and have all of these different nodes doing different kinds of things to, to render a verdict, ultimately, like, is this a hot dog or not, sort of thing? Uh, is this person smiling? You know, uh, did they make a particular gesture? And there's always been sort of like a, a bit of a art and craft and science to it. Certainly, we've talked about that on the show and, and all these different tools that make it easier to use. We've talked about um, IBM's partnership with Apple to make training easier uh, for Core ML-based models. Uh, this sort of takes that to like the next level. And and we've seen, uh, by this point, Microsoft Build and Google I.O., the 2018 editions. And I didn't see anything quite like this in terms of like how easy to use this was. So watch the video, see how they stitch together these different sort of pre-built uh, model components that you can then train, tweak, and do things like, hey, let's, uh, let's have it recognize a person's gesture, hand gesture, and turn that into the requisite emoji uh, and many other things, uh, more, more than just that. But it, I don't know, it was pretty amazing to me how, how quickly they could do that. Yeah, the little demo that they put on Twitter of the guy, you know, doing a thumbs up or an OK symbol and switching to the emoji at the same time. It was pretty cool. I, uh, looking at that, I kind of wonder if you could do like a American Sign Language translator, you know, which would be cool. Yeah, I don't see why not. And they uh, they output to quite a few different things. So they'll export to TensorFlow. Uh, it looks like Keras, Coromel. They have um, a web API. Uh, I think it's probably a RESTful type API. So they've, they've definitely done the whole sort of meal deal here. And I, I would, it, it's in beta right now. You can join the beta. So I don't have any information about pricing. I would be terribly shocked if these folks weren't acquired before the end of the year. 
to be quite honest, this this is the sort of thing I would do if I was a head of Azure or AWS or Google Cloud Platform or, or even Apple. I would just, just go buy these guys and, and incorporate it into my tool set. Yeah, there was a joke on one of the Slacks I was looking at about how long it would take before they get acquired, like a pool, you know? Yeah, they, they, they have all sorts of interesting examples here, like using this thing to um, identify what kind of musical instrument, you know, the audio source is coming from. Is it a ukulele? Is it a banjo? Those kinds of things you already could do with a lot of these machine learning tools just in a nice graphical output sort of way. You know, take this input, adjust the parameters until you're, you're happy with it, and then connect that output into another node's input and just parameters and, and keep going on and stitching together these, uh, like these little Lego blocks. Cool. All right. So um, next one was a post I got from my, my uh, colleague at work. Eric um, sent this to me the other day, and I think I saw some tweets on this, so maybe we can talk about this one a little bit more open. But uh, this is a t- uh, post out of 9to5Mac saying that Apple is cracking down on apps that send location data to third parties, and uh, some uh, developers have been told to remove their apps from the store or remove the SDKs that share uh, information to third-party agencies. And I don't know if that how that applies to people like Facebook or, or um, Google if you're using their SDKs in your app. But it, it all, it's all coming out of the GDPR, the General uh, Data Protection Regulation stuff as well. It's all amidst all that kind of stuff. And I guess all the privacy conversations that have been going around. Uh, did you see something on Twitter last week, uh, Jaime, about um, other apps that were running into trouble with third-party stuff? Yeah, I, I, I saw this article, but I didn't understand. Like, I wish they had given a more concrete example. Like, what, what sort yeah. of SDKs are folks using that uh, sends location data to third parties? Well, I mean, like, um, you could take you could take Google Analytics, for example, right? Because what that does is it cap- it uses the IP address of the device to determine where in, in the world they are, right? I mean, everything does that. I mean, our podcasting um, analytic engines do the same thing, right? And web- websites do that for, have been doing it for a while. But so I don't know if that falls under this particular category because then, you know, I mean, from the person's IP address, you can extrapolate down to like a, a you know, a street and an address, right? Whether it's their ISP's address or whatever, um, you can sort of narrow, mm-hmm. zoom, narrow down to where they are in the world, right? And I think if you use location services in your in your app, you can, you, you know, you can use the cell, tri- cell tower tri- triangulation to find out where they are and get a sort of, you know, coordinate. And then if you send that out to somebody outside of your app, right, um, through some sort of SDK or whatever, either knowingly or not knowingly, right? That was like, the part I, I, I was a little un, unclear about because there are tons of SDKs, hypothetically, that yeah. can run afoul of this. You know, anything that uses Facebook's, uh, Google's, yeah, uh, yeah. Mixed so Panel. I asked the question at the beginning, yeah. But, um, I, and then, but I think the way around it is is as long as you explicitly get consent, you're you're okay right. to do that. It's only if you don't if you don't tell the user explicitly and, and allow them to opt out uh, and you still send their information, that's that's where the problem is. And you can see where, where this could be a problem. You could be, I mean, you could have good intentions. Let's say you're, you know, you have a, uh, a store uh, that is paying you uh, in your app to tell to tell them whenever someone is on the premises of the store so they can direct advertising to them. Right, right. Uh, well, if you don't, if you're using some other app, you know, you're using um, the latest uh, version of device tracker that has this turned on uh, and you're just, you're just trying to track <laughs> your devices, uh, hypothetically, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and suddenly you start getting advertising from Nordstrom's because you happen to be in Nordstrom's. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of disconcerting and and it's kind of a privacy violation so so but it but if 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 you in your app uh tim had said hey we're going to send your location to places are you okay with this uh then then it's okay you know an example of that would be if you have if you have an app that's say let's i'm just making this up now but it's a crowdsourcing
pricing, tell you how long the lines are at on each ride at Disneyland, let's just say, you know, for the sake of argument. And so, of course, your app needs to know uh, where where you are. And maybe, you know, you, if maybe Disney has a, a an API, I don't know what they do, I'm just making this up, where, where you know, your app can, can send your address to, or your location to that API and find out what the line is there without actually having to keep track of it all yourself. Well, that's a case where, yeah, you know, I, as the user of your app, I want you to use my location information because it's a fundamental part of the app and it's a service that I'm opting into because that's that's why I'm using the app. So so I think as long as you ask permission, and this is where in the in this article they talk about the 5.1.1 and 5.1.2 in the in the app store review guidelines, uh, where if you ask permission, it's okay. But if you don't ask permission, that's where the problem is because it's a privacy issue. So you mean yeah. like the opting into location services or because or, I mean I no, think I mentioned well, this last no, it's, week. It's it's deeper than that. So so you, when you opt into location services, you're giving permission for the app that you're using to use your location. But this is another level. This is this is this is for the app that you're using passing that information to somebody else. That's what this yeah, is. No, of course, yeah, 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 right. Yeah. right. Yeah. So it's a it's a whole another level. Well, so like, but I was saying though is it's kind of funny because the I mean it's not funny, but the the, the kind of regs and rules and regulations change because I, I remember I think I mentioned last week that um, you know at one point I remember putting the Google Analytics app into one of my apps and or an app that I was working on and it said that you had to give you had to provide a way for the user to opt out of Google mm-hmm. Analytics but mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily it didn't say anything sp- explicitly about having asked for their permission now hopefully Google has updated their the the SDK to, to you know change that around but th- I'm talking like you know three four years ago right well I, I think it's okay to say I, I think it complies if you say this app does this thing do you right. want to opt out and if they say no I don't want to opt out then they've given consent so I think that's okay okay again I'm not a lawyer but you're not I, a lawyer okay I think that's okay well I'll go by whatever Jaime says I guess yeah <laughs> well, I'm, I'm quite confused as to the level at which Apple is making this determination, because normally when they do this sort of thing, they say, oh, well, your app update has been rejected. But in this case, they've gone a little bit further and are apparently removing applications from the store itself, right. yeah, which is yeah. something they don't do quite as often. Because there was another thread about uh, somebody getting their app rejected. And Twitter's a pain in the ass to work with. One way to get around yourselves. that. Huh? One easy way to get around that. What's that? Don't use Twitter? Don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good source of fodder. Mm. Uh, nope. A friend of mine posted a thing where, where it's, there's a, an app or a thing for kids called Stinky Rocks. And it's like something, it literally is a lump of coal. Direct from Hawaii? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. That's, that's an app we should write. A volcano uh, warning app where if you're in the range of a volcano it, it tell it sends you a notification tells you to run away <laughs> and well, don't you kind of know when you buy the house that it's on the side of a volcano volcanic moat mountain yeah, like, yeah. i mean they don't always erupt right, right. And, and certainly hawaii tends to have the ones that are constantly erupting and they'll just you know they never build up that much pressure they're like the opposite of mount st helens right they just waited until it boiled over and blew off half the darn mountain yeah, uh, th- yeah. this case is wildly surprising so i, I kind of like Mark's, Mark's idea, I wonder if it could be generalized to like other types of disasters like uh, tsunami, earthquake, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. I'm telling you, seriously, Tammy and I have this running running conversation where she'll say to me, is so-and-so dead? Or I'll say, by the way, you know, blah, 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 died last yesterday or whatever. And she'll go, no way. And she never remembers. So I'm telling you, we need to make an app that uses vision and computer and, and core ML that you can scan a photograph and it'll tell you whether that person's dead or not dead. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's quite of a, a, a dark, somber one, but sure. It would be a whole lot easier to just type in the name and have it check. Yeah, that's true. That's the picture. Well, you know, in, in the amount of time it takes her, that it would take her to look it up on Google, she types it into Slack in, in the roundabout Slack and asks me, or I tell her, I just go ahead and, by the way, she asked me the other or, day if Jerry Garcia was dead, Mark. Who? She asked me if Jerry Garcia was dead the other day. Oh, well, it was, only, it was only over 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And I, I said, by the way, Zappa's dead too. She's like, no way. Did you hear that John Lennon died too? Uh, you know, I, I should ask her that. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. last year we went through the whole Michael, with his Michael Prince and Michael, um, the Wham guy. Oh, um, George Michael. George Michael. Yeah. George Michael. Yeah. And then of course, Carrie Fisher, you know, the day before him. Right. So. And, and Elvis is dead too. Elvis is dead. Yeah. I heard he was yeah. eating a peanut butter sandwich on the toilet. So. Yeah. Only in America. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's potty humor. Yeah. So, Hamid, give us some recaps on what was going on in the big announcements last week, this week, I guess. Yeah. You know, we're, we're looking ahead to WWDC in about a month, actually, now, as of, as of this recording. And Microsoft and Google have both had their big developer-focused events. Uh, let's start with Microsoft Build 2018. Um, we'll have an article here from The Verge on the six big, biggest announcements. I don't think my opinion necessarily matches with theirs all, all the way, but there are some interesting themes here. So one, I think, would be that Microsoft being everywhere is no longer synonymous with Windows being everywhere. They're, they're kind of going back to the past, right? We, we talked about Microsoft Office, uh, or not Office, but uh, the Office products being available on the Mac first, uh, which is a little surprising when you think about it historically, uh, just given the recent history of, of Microsoft. But Microsoft was probably at its best when it was building stuff to, to run everywhere. And going along that theme, they're adding what's essentially like a iCloud for non-Microsoft based phones. So you're using uh, Android phone, iPhone, or on Windows 10, they're adding these uh, sync points like uh, an app called Your Phone that you know has text messaging, uh, accessing photos, and, and other bits. Also, they've got this timeline thing that will keep track of documents and, and stuff that you've been tinkering with so that you can very easily go back to that. Um, presumably, if you're tied into Office 365, that'll work a little bit better. Um, they're also doing things to coordinate with sort of their, their frenemies, right? So uh, Cortana and Alexa, both the Microsoft and Amazon-related uh, virtual assistants are going to be working together. They, we talked about this many minutes ago, probably last build. Uh, now it's actually becoming closer to being reality, where you can ask one to open up the other and get sort of the, the best of both worlds there. It, in somewhat of an awkward way, but you can still say, hey, you know, I want to send an email. Well, the Echo doesn't really do that. Amazon doesn't really have that sort of tied-in infrastructure. Uh, but if you have an Outlook account, sure, why not? Or if you are on Windows 10 and you want to buy something, well, lots of reasons people tend to have Amazon stuff. So you can talk to Alexa and say, hey, you know, go buy uh, 10 cases more of beer or whatever it is that makes you happy. And there's other bits that are related to uh, Internet of Things and machine learning. So they push really hard on Azure IoT Edge, so Azure Internet of Things Edge, where you can develop these models, uh, machine learning models, and have those put right out to, you know, whatever device, uh, embedded or, you know, phone-based device. They also talked a lot about um, a lot about privacy, actually, like right at the beginning. So that'll contrast a little bit with, with Google's, who really didn't talk about it at all. Uh, spoilers for that. Really? But they talked about having a privacy focus with a like an internal like review board focused on privacy where they you know can discuss the ethical implications about when well, you know, should they address this particular area or what sort of steps might they need to take so that that was really good and i think the other thing that i would absolutely love to see apple um, take note from is they're offering developers more money or at least a bigger share of the pie where depending how a user
user gets to your particular app, Microsoft will either take 85, sorry, Microsoft will give you 85% of that value. Or if they came directly from like a deep link from your website or something, they'll give you 95% cut rather than the 70% cut. And I think, what is it? 85, 80%, whatever it is for the second year subscription. So hopefully this will, this will spur some, uh, some competition in those rates there. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on those before uh, moving on? Um, no, not really. I guess other than, I guess Windows 10 doesn't suck as much as you used to. It sucks a little less <laughs> this week's announcements. <laughs> All right. What else you got? Google had a really, really solid keynote at the very least for Google IO. Uh, of course, they talked about Android P, the latest Android uh, device, uh, sorry, Android operating system, which has some, some, some niceties. It's getting to the point where these are, you know, not huge earth shaking things. I think the funniest thing for people who are iOS fans is the fact that they are pushing their, their gestures based sort of home button thingy that is surprise surprise very similar to an iphone 10's old gesture system right um, i'm neither here nor there in it i think there are some bits in their implementation that i'd like to see for the next iteration of ios but uh, I, I couldn't really ignore that one as a as a way to, to sort of dig that that ecosystem but so a happier it's one, like the ho- no home button kind of thing like are there phones out there already that don't have home buttons or so they've had the um on-screen buttons for the back button home button multitasking button i forget what the other button is because i'm not an android user right yeah yeah um oh. they haven't been hardware hardware based in a long time uh, there are some devices that still have the hardware buttons but they've, they've been software buttons so this is not as big of a change for android folks in fact it takes up um more or less the same screen real estate area so they don't even have to worry about a adjustment for a safe area layout that sort of thing like, like we did um they also pushed a dashboard feature for android p that is going to show you you know details about how you're spending time on your device but the idea being that there's been a lot of criticism about these, you know, phone manufacturers and operating system vendors and pushing more towards, you know, let's make it so that people are not addicted 24 seven to these devices. Right. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I agree too much with that. I think there's a big part of personal responsibility. Um, cognizant of the fact that there certainly are uh, addictive qualities that app makers uh, certainly push into apps that we should be cognizant of. But I think it's good if, you know, if people want the tool and it's there and they can realize, holy smokes, I spent 72 hours last week on YouTube. Like maybe I shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. That's perfectly fine for folks. Uh, there's even an automatic grayscale mode timer thingy that can be set. So if um, what is that? You, know, you should be so if if you've seen folks uh, talking about it, where they'll intentionally put their phone into like black and white mode to make it less stimulating visually for them, and they'll oh, just, like, really? give up. I've never heard on of that. Hmm. It's a really weird trend, but I, I certainly would not do it myself. Like I'm not going to do that. But if there are people who who need that little extra spurring thing, um, Android P has like a like a night mode or like a, what do we call it? Not the do not disturb bedtime mode or something on iOS. I forget what this is called because there's similar named features where um, rather than doing the the night shift sort of thing, it will like you know switch to black and white, and you'll be like, all right, well maybe I should stop looking at Instagram because the photos are not as good anymore. That is stimulating without the, the oh. bright visual color. Right. Yeah, they have a do not disturb mode now too, right? Which is similar to like you can set a timer that you'll your phone will go into like a do not disturb mode right away, or even if you turn it face down, it'll it'll do that as well. Yeah, which I think will be interesting for folks who will accidentally trigger that because I, I know a lot of friends who will, you know, you, you go to a restaurant, they'll immediately put the phone face down on the table and they're in a case where they probably wouldn't mind being disturbed if they were like waiting for a phone call or something. Yeah, I do that in meetings. Like if I'm, if I'm in a meeting or whatever, I'll put my, either keep my phone in my pocket or, you know, or put it face down on the desk so it doesn't distract me. But I 
find it really annoying when people's phones buzz on the desk when you're in a meeting or whatever. Right, right. You know? um, I think the biggest thing coming out of that keynote, it probably not only the most impressive, but also by far the most controversial thing is Google Duplex, right, where they yeah. showed how the Google Assistant can perform tasks for you, like calling a hair salon or calling a restaurant and interacting with actual human beings on your behalf. That's a little crazy. Yeah, I heard a clip of that earlier today on, on the radio there where it's, you know, it's the call up the radio, call up the place and can, can I make an appointment, get my hair cut? And, and the girl on the phone says, you know, wow, well, you know, what, when would you like to come in? I'd like to come in at noon. And, oh, I don't have an appointment at noon. I have, you know, one at three or one at one and, and back and forth. And you, I kind of, I thought that the person answering the phone was the, the robot, but it turned out the person making the call was actually the, the robot voice, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of humming and hawing and, you know, sounding like more like, like a, like an actual person, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Right. So there's a, really, uh, there's a telemarketing scam that I've, I've gotten a couple of times calls from where, where, uh, you pick up, you say hello. And, and there's, they ask for a person by name. And you, of course you say, no, you got the wrong number or something like that. And then they say, Oh, maybe you can help me then. Really? And, and yeah. And, and then they launch into their thing. And I realized like a, the, the, the second time I got this thing that this was a recording because, right. because whatever you say, they will, they'll still just launch into this. Oh, maybe you can help me and keep going. And whatever you say, it just keeps going. Huh. So, really? so they, they purposely put in this, ask for just some random name and, you know, counting on the fact that the chances of, of, I think that the name they use is, is something that's kind of rare, like page, I think was the name. So it's, you know, it's pretty unlikely that someone is just going to randomly be there with that name. So, so they can, so they can kind of rope you in to saying something and then, and then keep going on with the spiel. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. I was it's getting like that one jo- a bunch of times a few months back. Really? I never heard that one before, but it's, it's yeah. like the old joke where you call up and say, Hey, is Bob there? And they go, no. And then you get someone else to call and say, is Bob there? And again, they say, no, you got the wrong number. And you get a third person to call up and say, is Bob there? And, and you know, the person gets really annoyed in the phone. He's like, no, he's not here. And then, you know, about half an hour later, somebody calls him and says, hey, this is Bob. Is there any messages? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could do that. What else did I they think- have it there at the Google I.O.? They had they had that, uh, um, not Core ML, but ML kit, right? Did you see that one? Yes, which um, has me thinking of a conference talk idea, free idea out there, but give me the attribution if you do it, you know, doing it before I do. Core ML kit will be the title. Core ML kit, yeah. Where <laughs> you, will, you, you know, let's build a, like a hot dog or not type app and use CoreML from Apple to see how that works and then compare and contrast with what ML kit Google's take. Or how about, how about a about. cross-platform library that you can write once and use it on both platforms? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, comparing and contrasting some of what they do and abstracting that into like a tiny little library or, or, or something where you you can switch between them seamlessly depending on your needs. Yeah. Um, from what I saw, CoreML, oh, sorry, see, I even did it there. ML kit is uh, is very similar to CoreML in that, you, you know, you have your pre-trained models, you run them to do, you know, vision framework type stuff to do uh, OCR, optical character recognition type stuff. And the nice thing about it, though, is that you could use both. You had the option, right? So very similar to what we talked about with IBM's partnership with Apple and, and the Watson sort of API relationship. You can have the early on device only models running, but they also had, and I've not, I've not looked through the docs too, too closely myself, so I don't know how this works, but they also have a web API version that will, uh, of course, it's not on device only. Of course, it requires connectivity, but can do the more expensive processing and, and more up-to-date processing without, you know, having to launch, uh, sorry, uh, update your app sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Although that was that was interesting, and I'd like to see a little bit of compare and contrast there. And maybe I'll end up doing that myself. But it's pretty exciting to see how uh, both Apple or Google are sort of going neck and neck and competing with like you know Caramel, ML Kit, AR Kit, AR Core, which led people to say like, wait a minute, how come these guys are using Core, and then on this other part they're using Core, and then these guys are using ML, and then the other part they're using ML? I think it's probably just hard to come up with good product names that yeah. that state what it is on the tin with the, you know without uh, without having crazy branding that nobody can understand. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm predicting Touch Bar Kit's going to come to WWDC. Mm. So, what about the uh, the um, uh, directions for people that they had? You know, the the it's basically uses uh, augmented reality to give you directions while you're walking along and looking at your phone. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. It's sort of the Pokemon Go style uh, Google Maps directions, and yeah. they even had what was really nice and hard to do the occlusion part, where you know it shows you the mapping route, but the mapping route should be occluded or you know blocked visually by like buildings and people they walk in front of it that was pretty neat yeah the little map drawn on the bottom there but you or you could like they had a little animated fox that you could follow like the pokemon thing you were saying right but you know with the big arrows telling you to turn right and all that kind of stuff as you're walking around boston of all places right <laughs> yeah and they're, they're they called it vps the visual positioning system right that'll yeah. be really nice from the, the machine learning side to figure out where the heck am i and i think a use case that's come up for me a lot of times is i'll be you know driving in a downtown somewhere i will come out of a parking garage so i didn't have any sort of connectivity i'll fire up maps and be like dude i have no idea which direction i'm facing it's exactly, overcast yeah, because yeah. it's seattle of course it is overcast <laughs> so i can't see the sun and use the time of day to figure out which literally which direction am i facing and then you kind of have to just choose as your uh, as your heart desires walk a direction and then see how the gps updates and say oh, okay i'm going in the wrong direction i need to turn 180 degrees go the opposite way yeah, instead see, the, the cn tower is not so GPS. dumb now eh? <laughs> <laughs> but i used to always get turned around when i was walking in boston i would, I would walk around the financial district and, and you end up heading south because it's it's like a big it's like a big bubble i guess you know Ever, i guess mark never got lost in boston but i used to all no the time. i've gotten lost in boston it's confusing <laughs> the the roads the, the the legend is the roads were were put down where uh where like the, the cattle used to just wander around town and and made paths yeah exactly we have the same same some roads like that here in toronto as well. yeah. a lot of them are grids but we have some roads that meander right yep yep mm, interesting we have uh, a double grid system in seattle from two very closely located settlements that grew into seattle uh, they're huh. very nice and straight until they take about a 45 degree angle turn where it's another nice and very straight yeah system. yeah it's like san francisco mm, yeah. mm. but we have that in toronto too like our, our mississauga like the the roads are all perpendicular to the lake right so but the lake is curved right so um as you know toronto is one sort of one direction north like north south and when you go to mississauga it's just slightly to the west right so if you look at the map you'll see that the, the roads actually uh, turn at some point like a big sunshine mm-hmm. <laughs> cool so back to google yeah. io did they did they actually mention swift tensorflow at all in the keynote they nope. did not okay. and uh chris latner did not come out even though we thought there was a reasonable possibility that he might mm-hmm. they definitely mentioned tensorflow a lot they talked about their their new tpu that tensor processing unit uh, right. capacity that they have that's uh, water cooled and everything right. uh, everything was about uh, machine learning machine learning machine learning ai 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 and, uh, and every product and including updates to gmail that pretty much writes the darn email for you if you just yeah. hit the tab yeah. mm. so you can have less typo and they also have a couple of uh, like i think i talked about uh, google translate where you can scan the language and it'll convert it to uh, like from whatever one language to another but they've also got this um 
thing where Google Lens can copy text, it says here in the headline. Yeah, yeah. So if you're you know, collecting sort of a recipe list uh, or you need to copy some text and shove it into like a translate or something, although that would be pretty neat to use. Um, I think I'd like to, I was telling a friend of mine at the Google I.O. extended event that I kind of want to see, because they showed the, like you're at a Chinese restaurant and you want to understand what the menu is, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. You know, tell me the text, but I want the sort of like the opposite direction where, okay, I know there's this noodle soup that I like and there's a very similar noodle soup that I don't like. And if you look at the textual translation, they're both literally going to say beef noodle soup. What I want is to be able to shove in an image and say, look, this is the thing that I had at this other restaurant. Find me the item on this menu that matches to that. Oh, is it P45? Great. I would like to order P45, please. Mm-hmm. I think it's doable. Yeah. You could also write down the, the name of the soup when you're at the last restaurant, but that's that doesn't help me when it's beef noodle soup. <laughs> with like, you know, the, the character itself is actually different, but not to my eyes, right? I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know uh, uh, that character system and, and translating it literally into English is like beef noodle soup. Oh, B46 is also beef noodle soup. Which of these two things do I want? I don't know. The other thing that, that was exciting to one of our colleagues, uh, she was looking at uh, the example where you can, you can look at uh, a, a model or a mannequin or whatever, or, or I guess a person and, you know, take a look at their shoes and click on them and it'll switch over to Google search and they'll find you those shoes and where to buy them uh, in a in a store or whatever, Amazon, that kind of thing, right? That was yeah, cool. Amazon and Pinterest should be very nervous about that because that's something that they've been pushing really hard on. And, and I guess eBay yeah, as well, to be that's fair. true. Yeah, because Amazon has that thing where you can scan a product and it'll find you that, that product in their catalog, right? Yeah, and Pinterest will do similar type things and will, you know, find you, you know, find me a, a shirt that looks like this. Or oh, really? Okay, find me that. a pair of pants that, you know, are similar to this, even if it's not exactly the same. They're getting really good at doing that stuff. And hmm. it looks like Google is uh, nipping at their heels here. Well, Google had that Google Goggles app a while back. I don't know if you remember that one, but it was the same sort of idea. You could you could point at a product and it would it would examine where it was and then find do a Google search on that thing for you based on the image. Mm-hmm. Right? So, cool. And there was a little bit about Alexa and, and uh, I guess you, you already talked about that or? Do you mean Google Assistant? Yeah, the Google And Assistant. the updates to that where they will have uh, six new voices, including John Legend. Really? <laughs> which is which is interesting. Okay, that's, that's not so exciting. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Google, I mean, yeah, it was hard to get my iOS developers excited about this, but, you know, the Android guys were pretty impressed. Yeah, I think I think it just gives me ideas for the sorts of things I would like to see at WWDC, and mm-hmm. certainly we should uh, we should ask Apple for, as a, as a community, uh, if they don't provide us uh, some of these similar things. I think it's pretty reasonable that, you know, these sorts of things are what developers are going to want. You know, both, you know, Microsoft has their take on it, Google has their Apple has theirs. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, having um, comparable choices for a lot of these things would be great. Right. Cool. All right. So I guess we're at our Picorama part of the show here. So uh, how many do you have a pick? I do. Uh, it's the uh, official release of Vapor 3.0. Vapor 3 is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at the uh, Medium article that we've linked here in the show notes. Um, they've done a lot under the covers for what I was reading here about uh, they're using the new Apple Swift NIO for non-blocking IO um, for concurrent reasons. They've done a lot to use uh, Codable within their their whole uh, parsing and decoding of stuff. Uh, they're doing a lot of, uh, apparently, dependency injection instead of JSON, JSON configuration files. Uh, they've, of course, come out with a uh, couple of books, one of which is from our uh, from our dear friends at uh, RayWinderlich.com, the server-side Swift with Vapor, mm-hmm. which does have an animal of some sort. A nematode or something. Vapor yeah. itself may not so, be an animal. what's a TLDR on, on Vapor? It's the server-side Swift, right? Server-side Swift framework, and they've got... Right. Uh, their own charts here on how it compares to you know other server-side Swift frameworks like Katura and Perfect, as right. well as other 
server-side frameworks that are not Swift. Like, um, this is Go, but what are they comparing it to? Go Jin, apparently. Mm. Uh, or Node.js with Express. Or Sinatra the Ruby. You know, or Apparently, Django with Python is pulling up the rear here. But, you know, I think whatever it is you end up choosing, there's going to be pros and cons to, to all of these. I think Vapor looks really, really exciting in terms of, you know, the sort of work that they've been doing there. I certainly feel like there's been a lot of buzz around them. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's there. It's open source. They're on Vapor. Uh, sorry, github.com slash Vapor. They've got the release tag for the 3.0.0 version. Cool. These charts are pretty impressive sh- showing the performance versus things like Node.js or, or Flask or Django. So there's, yeah. there's a couple of benchmarks there. One is the raw throughput in requests per second uh, and uh, Vapor and Perfect are kind of neck and neck at, it's looking like roughly 120K, uh, but then Katura is only at about 60K and then Node.js with Express is, is I'm, you know, I'm estimating here, maybe only about 20 k and then flask and django with our pipe which are python web frameworks are down really really low like 5 to 10k it's, that's pretty amazing i'm really surprised and then there's uh average latency during the benchmark and vapor and perfect again are kind of neck and neck at uh, on the very low end so lowest latency and uh django is really really pretty bad uh, according mm-hmm. to this chart flask is and, and ruby are not great either it's pretty impressive actually yeah i i'm sure there are backend engineers shaking their fist right now at us um yeah i know that historically there's there's been a lot of discussion about like should you use a a threading based concurrency model the scale or should you use a i'm using the wrong term but let's call it like an instance based model where uh, way back in yield and days it would have been oh well java's uh you know jtw enterprise stuff you just you have a big beefy machine and it will spin up tons of threads to handle concurrent requests whereas ruby on rails couldn't do concurrency to save its life so you scaled up by having a bunch of commodity boxes all working in parallel and uh, it's a little like i can presumably guess what what's happening on the the plain text best benchmark in terms of that and that it wouldn't surprise me that you would have uh you know like a singular box with vapor do a whole lot better than a singular box with uh ruby on rails mm-hmm. uh, where i'm a little less clear is on the latency part because uh, i wonder how that test was set up and does it take into account you know uh the way that you know modern sites would set up uh, caching mechanisms with redis and other bits mm-hmm. i don't know it's not my not my area of expertise because not a backend engineer by trade, but uh, it certainly looks exciting that they've, you know, they've squeezed out all of this performance in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. Right. So I have a couple of picks, but one, two of them, two of them are related. And uh, I was reading an article today written by a friend of the show, a friend of mine, Rich Turton, uh, who works for Martian Craft, uh, about dealing with dates. And, um, you know, they say that uh, dates and children are two things you shouldn't work with in your apps. Um, and sort of, Rich sort of injects a little bit of humor here uh, in his writing style, but he's talking about um, the date type um, in terms of how to deal with different types in terms of determining what type time of day it is and especially when you get into international cases. Um, something he says which I didn't know is that a date object is actually a just a collection of the number of seconds since the epoch which was you know January 1st 1970. At midnight um, UTC and so you know we've talked about date handling on the, in the past whether you're working in UTC or Gregorian calendar which is pretty much the default sort of style of looking at dates, at least in, in our end of the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's interesting to talk about how to handle dates and, and um, worth definitely worth having a quick look uh, at it. Um, a couple of things that came out of that was one interesting tool here. Uh, if you've ever worked with dates and had to use a, cause you use a date format to get the date object out and turn it into a string that you can then display to the user or what have you, or or how to, he talks about different ways that dates come into, into being, either you, you just call the date um, 
an instance of date and it tells it, it records what time it is at this very moment that you call it or if you're filling in a, a date picker um, the date is a, the date that's displayed is the date the time at which that date and time that at which you loaded that view it doesn't change your update or whatever or it could be coming from a server in which case you know it's uh, it could be in any number of formats um, and you use you, you know put it through the date formatter to figure out how it is but um, interesting tool again similar to what I was talking about with the Bezier tool uh, is he talks about it in the really briefly in the article is a website this is sort of my second pick or my one one point five pick and that's called um, oh sorry yeah so NS date formatter is the uh, is the name of the website nsdateformatter.com and of course you can put a date in there and you can add, you can look at the UTC formatting for string like uh, the characters like in the example they have three uppercase M's and four lowercase Y's will give you the you know May 2018 uh, if you passed in you know the current date and time right now and that's if you're using US uh, ENUS POSIX you can switch to ENUS Canadian if you're in Canada or you can switch to Indian or whatever locale you're dealing with because that's one of the things that comes with the date um, object I, sh- I forgot to mention was that there's also a locale attached to it um, and depending on where you are you can display the date in a different format so the TLDR here is if you use this website uh, and a state formatter and you want to sort of figure out how to display your date you can look at the examples that are there and figure out if you want a long date or a short date of course you know the NS date formatter has uh, different um, I guess enumerations in terms of what kind of dates you can get you get short date long date you know full date and so whether you just want to show you know a numeric date or um, the month you know day time whatever um, you can it shows you how to format that so you can get out the right kind of string you need so it's kind of a cool tool if you're interested in working with dates or that's something you've been challenged with in the past it's a kind of good little article to, to give you the TLDR on that your thoughts cool. on that yeah dates are, are a lot harder than they seem they seem yeah. like they ought to be really simple but they're they're not when you have to deal with different time zones and daylight savings time and yep. all that kind yep. of stuff it's yeah it can be complicated yeah well we have a hard enough time coordinating when we're going to record this that's podcast. right yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we I think we've kind of learned between the three of us that you know when I what time I say you, you guys have to add three hours to it right so right yeah all right yeah I added a sorry I um, registered for a webinar not realizing oh, what really? it said i thought it said 2 p.m pst but it was 2 p.m bst uh, which for those yeah. of you out there is british summertime no way apparently it's like six in the morning here so oh wow i may or may not wake up for that webinar but uh yeah time zones are hard well i mean rich talks about in the introduction of the article that you know he, he's in england right and, and of course he's often dealing with uh, people in the states right and uh i think for a period of time like we we do our daylight savings time a couple of months before they do they do the old the old you know the old daylight savings time i think george bush changed our daylight savings time when he was in office uh, the second one um and um yeah so we now we turn our clocks ahead sooner than they do so for those for a while there they're, they're sort of he's like what time are we meeting at kind of thing you know because confusing for him too so wait how, but, could, and, you know, how like, could george bush change the daylight the time zone in canada sorry well, he, i think we went along with you guys oh, oh, oh okay yeah, yeah yeah so i think the north americans changed the time. I don't know about Mexico, but um, they are technically in North America, but um, I know we changed ours around the same time. And it's funny, we have one province, Saskatchewan, that doesn't do daylight, daylight savings time. They're just always on whatever central time, I guess, they're, they're on over there. Mm-hmm. So I think we're currently in daylight savings time, if I'm not mistaken. Right? So we're EDT and you guys are PDT. Um, but this other, this other, my last pick is is kind of a fun one I, and I was poking around, um, I forget how I ended up on this one, but it's, and you guys can tell me if it's, real, it's something to do with Simpsons 
but it's a search engine that will find you um, still frames from the 30 years of episodes of The Simpsons, and it's called uh, Frink, Frink, Frinkiak? Frinkiak. So, so the character is Professor Frink. Oh, Professor Frink. So it's a, it's his search engine that uh, right. if you've gone over there. So you can you can hit the random button and whatever. But if you put any kind of phrase in there, it'll... it'll I was playing around with it the other day, and I put in like iOS and Mac and whatever just to see what would come in, and, and it just loads up a whole bunch of different... Uh, I think this must be a character that has Mac and his name, McDonald, maybe? Uh, like, what's the name of the janitor at the school? Like, oh, Tavish? I can't remember. Something... Uh, yeah. Willie? Yeah. What's his last name? Browns person Willie. Groundskeeper Willie? Groundskeeper Willie. I don't know what his last name is. But yeah, so it's cool. And it's amazingly it's fast. It. I don't know if you've tried it. Have you tried it? I'm, I'm trying it right now. Yeah, I put in Mendoza because there was like a long a long running gag that they had of this uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, lethal weapon style movie that would be appearing in the background. Right. Apparently, if you take, I don't know how many clips it is, but from like the whole of Simpsons history, there's actually a cohesive plot for a movie that's uh, kind of an 80s style one. So I, I put in Mendoza and I clicked on a random thing and it says uh, it's when the, the, the police chief is talking to McBain, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger stand-in. Like, Senator Mendoza is one of the most respected citizens in the state, McBain, and yet you ran his limo off a cliff, broke the necks of three of his bodyguards. You can make gifts, you can make memes. Yeah, it's cool, eh? Okay, here's another one that's relevant to um, uh, is, is sort of follow up to our discussions about the the problem with Apu uh, Apu Nahima just just Apu. <laughs> Dang it! I know what the name is, and I can't I can't pronounce it. But it's uh, much Apu about nothing from season seven, and it's after they did the vote about uh, whether the immigrants should be allowed to stay. And it's like, when are people going to learn democracy doesn't work? I remember that episode; it was a really good one. Natura Dilly. It says you're alone again. Natura. Turadilly. That's something related to his name. Apu Nahasapima Pedalon. <laughs> there you go. That's not racist at all. But it's interesting. It's got like each frame as they lead up to the one you're, you're, you've landed on, right? You yeah. can make your own Simpsons episode. <laughs> oh, I guess that's where you can make the animated GIF, right? Yeah, yeah that <laughs> reminds me of that episode where he has to do the uh, citizenship test. And the, the, the proctor asks him, you know, what was the what was the main reason for the Civil War? He's like, well, actually, there were many reasons, including... He's like... Mm. Oh, uh, slavery. Yes, slavery was the reason for the Civil War. <laughs> he was given this rather well-thought, well-articulated, you know, it's more than just slavery reason for the uh, the Civil War in the United States. And uh, and yet, and yet uh, they were just looking for the one. I thought it was really good, uh, sort of biting political commentary there. That's mm. honestly still kind of timeless. Uh, we really haven't gotten beyond that. Wow. But isn't that what the war was about? It was the North versus the South, right? Wasn't it about slavery? Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was explicitly in the... Uh, the complaint from the uh, the Confederates, right, when they right. had their, uh, whatever the equivalent of the Declaration of Independence was for the Confederates. They wanted to keep their floppy drive, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess that's it for the week. So, hey, how many people want to get in touch with you over the interwebs? Where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at the dev with the hair. All right. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark at markr at smartsoft.com. All right, Mark R. Okay, cool. And uh, say, I always just say, my name is Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A, and that's how to get a hold of me on the Twitter machine. And until next week, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. This is friend of the show, Mac and Talk, also known as the Talking Moose, eh? If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. 
You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at MTJC underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Now stick around for the after show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I think we've got some quicker hit type items. Oh, I never did get look look at this uh, iTunes on Windows thing. I should probably do a quick look on that. Hang on, I just made a comment there about your comment from last week. Yeah, I, I can I can already tell which way this is going to go. No, 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 it's not that. It's that, that my opinion is that that because um, I was there and Mark was there too. Like it was pretty dire times for Apple back then, and even even after iTunes and the iPod came out, people were like, well, "What's this going to do for what? What does this have to do for anything? Right? Like, how's this going to help? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when the iPod first came out, I'm thinking, okay, yeah." So they got a music player. So what, right? Um, and I couldn't understand why Apple wanted me to sell their iPod. They put a lot of effort behind it, right? And then I think when um, iTunes hit Windows is when it kind of really took off. Because then the iPod became something a lot of people started buying. can't believe anybody, nobody's ever written anything about this. Yeah, I looked up the uh, Steve Jobs got grumpy about it. And just like one of those legend type things, there's like two or three different perspectives on what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. I'm still standing strong in my statement. Well, he was grumpy about I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a feeling that, that there was a lot of, I mean, they wouldn't have put iTunes on Windows if he wasn't behind it somehow. Uh, yeah, remember, remember when uh, Resume. Steve had uh, Bill Gates talk at, at uh, was it? Oh, the big giant head, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and people booing. But yep. certainly if, if he was going to have uh, Microsoft make tools, then... Right. You know, there's no reason why. I mean, it's actually a, it's actually a good thing for Apple to have iTunes on Windows because yes. that means that, yeah. that people who have Windows machines can use an iPod or an iPhone or whatever and yeah. and uh, and sync to it. Okay, here I found an article on Quartz. It says making iTunes available for Windows changed everything for Apple. This is my point. Yes, but I feel like your your point is not incompatible with my statement, and I I think you think it is. Okay, well we can debate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What was what was the statement? I'm kind of uh, he just said that Steve one. got grumpy about it. I don't know why he was, well, well. Yeah, I, I, I re-listened to specifically this part so I could remember what it was. We oh. were talking about iTunes being available on the Microsoft Store, their equivalent yes. of the App Store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was brought up like, hey, hasn't it been there forever? And we said, no, actually, not this version. Uh, and the difference is yeah, that it was new. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, that I, I, I'd said that you know, despite Steve Jobs being grumpy about it, iTunes has been on Windows it's like forever. And, right. and here was the details and how you know this. New article was different. Well, right. Steve, Steve was Steve Jobs got grumpy about most things, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of his idea, he, he was grumpy about it. <laughs> so they're actually, they're actually, they're actually <laughs> if you look in this article, well, so we'll talk. We should talk about it on the show, but yeah, don't look at the article till we till we get there. This is a really interesting poster from Apple, but then don't look at it. And actually, a picture of Steve announcing it. <laughs> this must have been at one of the uh, at one of the dub dubs or one of the Macworlds. Anyway, I don't. I yeah, because you know, I remember being grumpy about it. To be honest with you, like. Thinking 
they can, you know, because but, but, but people forget pe- people forget the actual real enemy wasn't uh, Microsoft; it was IBM. Well, that's who uh, Apple early real on, enemy early on. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, what did I read the other day? I wanted to bring that into the story too. Um, anyway, uh, there's something in when I was reading about about the iMac. But um, and and as a matter of fact, I like to point out to people that Excel and Word were Macintosh products before they were Windows products, or they were they they were introduced on Mac first, right? Do you remember that? Because it was Lotus One Two Three mm-hmm. and Word Perfect were the were the you know, applications of choice on the IBM PC world, right? And it was it was Microsoft and, and Apple were partners. There's there's pictures of of I mean Steve, I mean what's his name? Bill Gates used to do you know he looked like he was twelve, but he used to be, appear on the stage at Apple events, you know, uh, with you know and toting how wonderful Apple was, right? So did you know um, the other guys like Ellison and those guys too. There used to be a place that sold used Macs here in in Toronto, and they had a poster like a, a plaque poster of yeah. these three anti anti Apple people who you would think were anti Apple like Oracle guy, you know, Sun guy and, and, and Bill Gates sort of in a in a group shot yep. supporting Apple. So I think if we remember the history, so yeah, so when the Mac first came out, IBM was definitely mm-hmm. the enemy, right? With the whole Yeah. Well uh, Apple yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Apple and IBM. Uh, IBM was the enemy, and there was the whole Super Bowl commercial with the throwing the javelin and all that, right? Right. Yes. Yep. Um, but then, a few years later, when when Windows came out, Windows, whichever Windows it was, that and there was the lawsuit where where Apple sued win, sued Microsoft over look and feel. Yeah, remember that? And, and so that's when. Microsoft became the enemy, right? And right. IBM well, was kind of sort of out of the picture at that point because by then it was there were all the PC clones, and IBM was only you know part of the the, the competition. Picture, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if, so it was related to that just statement you just made about um, Microsoft copying Apple because the the long story is, and, and I, fi- I got to find this post, but I, I'll just I'll reiterate what I remember reading about it, and it has to do with this the 20th anniversary of Mac. So I'll fit it into our conversation, but um, plug it in my iPad. Um, the story is that Apple. Stole, um, stole it from the, Xerox. Stole it from Xerox. Okay, but yeah. the reality is, the reality is, is that the Xerox Xerox head office had invested in Apple. They had bought. This is before Apple went public, right? They invested. They threw a bunch of cash at Apple, and in, in exchange for a bunch of stock options, or were I don't know what you call it back then, right? Similar to what what we talked about on the show many times, right? Mm-hmm. And so Steve Jobs was, you know, went over to see what was going on at Xerox Park, right? And they basically wouldn't talk to him, and they sort of said like you should go away like blah 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 and they, they chased him out of the building and he was real pissed off well he basically called Xerox head office in New York and they said I don't know what they said to the guys at Park but the next day Jobs showed up and they showed him everything mm. I mean Jobs and, and his entourage or whatever I, th- I know Jeff Raskin apparently I think it was Jeff Raskin or maybe Andy Hertzfield was was the guy who found out about what's going on and sort of you know said to Jobs you should go look at this stuff that's the that's the lore right so the reality was is that there was a deal so Xerox like kind of was a a big time investor in Apple or partner or whatever you, want to, whatever you want to call it. And then what happened was somebody at Xerox decided to sell all of their interest in Apple stock just before just before Apple went public. And if they had held on to that stock, it would have been worth three or four billion dollars now, mm-hmm. right? Just their stock, right? And so it's not that Jobs and those guys stole it. They were actually, you know, they were invited to go look at the tech. And, and Xerox Park, Xerox wasn't going to really do anything beyond, you know, 
couple of workstations with it anyway, right? So Apple got the you know the graphic user interface, and then Bill Atchison Atkinson wrote the the, the drop down menu apparently, and and you know they used the whole desktop metaphor, and that desktop metaphor was around until I mean it practically is still around, right? The trash can and all that kind of stuff that all came from Xerox Park as well as a bunch of other technologies like networking and things like that. But yeah, so it's actually not necessarily true that Apple stole it from. But and then when when coming back to what you just said was shortly after Apple rolled out the Macintosh, because, um, you know, as we all know, Jobs said, I don't want to do it on the Apple, I want to do it on a new machine, and blah, 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 bicycle for the mind, and all that kind of stuff, right? And um, the he was pissed off because Microsoft rolled out Windows uh, shortly after after the Mac arrived, right? So I'm trying to remember kinda, when, it, when it was. It was, so, okay, the Mac came out in 84, yeah. uh, and first time I remember using a Windows machine with Windows yeah. was probably 1990. Yeah, that's around the that same time. 3.1 or something like that, right? Yeah, Windows 3.1. Yeah. yeah. It, it might have been bad. out earlier than that, <laughs> but I just didn't use it because I was, you know, I was in school at the time. So we had... Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. We either had Macs or we had the big mainframes. Uh, yeah. And it was only when I started working in an office in, in 1990 that, that I used a Windows machine. Yeah. And it was around the same time for me because cause I got my first Mac in 89, the summer of 89. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked at... I did the research in earlier, earlier in 89. I went and looked at a bunch of IBM systems, but for some reason I, I saw a Mac first, and so everything everything I saw after that I was I was measuring against what my Mac experience the experience I had with the Mac. So, so we ended up going with Mac, um, and then because we our our office ran on a baby 36, an IBM 36, right? Mm-hmm. And they had those dumb terminals that everybody used to use, right? And um, but you know I, I had this one Mac, and it was sort of a maverick thing in the in the company, and we had eventually got another one, and so on and so forth, right? But around that winter time, like, you know, end of early, like you said, early 90, um, my president, the president of our company, you know, decided he needed to get a laptop and he went and got a Windows machine, right? And it was an early, early laptop. I don't, can't remember if it was a compact or something like that, but but it had Windows 3.1 on it. I remember it had mm-hmm. those sort of really goofy square, you know, the square close button with the blue um, on it and, and had a really sort of clunky looking um, looking desktop as well, right? But but I think by that time, Susan Kerr actually might have already already gone over to uh, Microsoft to design those things. That's one thing we didn't talk about last week, two weeks ago, whenever we talked about Susan Kerr's. She went, she designed the original icons on the app on, on Mac, or yeah, for the Macintosh. And then she went and worked at Microsoft for a while. And she, so she designed a lot of the early icons on, on um, because she had the, instead of having the 8-bit palette, she now had a 16-bit palette. So you had those sort of ugly yellows and grays and stuff like that, that, that made uh, Windows so fugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, I, so I, I remember a, though it wasn't it wasn't that much earlier than that though that the Mac had uh, still had you, there was there was a setting where it was you could you could see sometimes it was two hundred fifty six colors and something. yeah exactly yeah and yeah, it yeah went to yeah. thousands of colors and then millions of colors yeah and then it went back then 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 there was the lawsuit because it went from millions because it was actually it was twenty four bit color but it was actually th- you know eight bit RGB eight bit blue and eight bit green and combined together they made. Um, millions of colors and then at some point they had a, a laptop that came out that had a I think it was a TFT display and it couldn't display all the colors so they mm. dropped it down and then it was a lawsuit from like a class action lawsuit because people weren't getting their quote unquote millions of colors they were getting thousands of colors instead yeah. like they could actually yeah. tell the difference but still yeah yeah, yeah 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 exactly well they could because they were they were nerdy enough to go and investigate it right so yeah <laughs> yeah I, I remember there was um, still not sure I believe that they could actually see the difference even if they invested it. <laughs> 
and investigated. Yeah, I mean, my first Mac was a Mac too, so it was a color Mac, right? So yep. it was, and because um, I was working in Illustrator and I was working in color and stuff like that. But I remember there was a there was something that went in the system. I, was, I, was, I never did figure this out, but there was some uh, addition that went into. I was on System Six at the beginning. There was some um, C dev that or in it or whatever that went into the system palette system uh, folder that basically made um, some of the icons appear in color, right? And that's when, you know, I started looking at learning about ResEdit. Remember ResEdit? Yeah, I do. You yeah. can go and play around with the icons and change stuff. And For those who don't know, that stood for resource editor. So in the in the early yeah. days of the Mac, it's kind of similar now, but uh, in, in the way that you have like an asset catalog. But, but sure. back, back in before iOS, sorry, before Mac OS 10, uh, in the old versions of, of, of Mac OS, there was this whole concept of the resource folder where all your resources would sit. And, yeah. and they were, you know, explicitly separate from your code and you would have to uh, load the resources to use them in the code and and yeah. this tool ResEdit would let you edit those. Yeah, edit icons. And that's how people yep. came up with skins. You could get like a Star Star Trek skin. You could change all your icons into like little enterprises and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. But um, yeah, we were, we were talking about that on um, Spotcast last episode too. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll oh, just, about we'll the just... Star Trek skinning. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, I know. Not about ResEdit. <laughs> well, we were talking, we were, Jaime, Jaime is, a, you know, Jaime came over to um, to Mac, like around, I guess, less than 10 years ago, right, Jaime? Yeah, it would have been like 2011 when I started iOS development. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. so it was already well after OS, Mac OS 10, was mm-hmm. it? Yeah. 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 So, and I had my, and so we were talking about the, the concept of naming computers, right? Because, you know, right from the get go, we named our, my, my that, that first computer I had was, we named it Marvin, right? Um, you know, after the Martian, Marvin the Martian from Looney Tunes. And um, I have a picture of myself with my assistant, Marianne, sitting in front of the computer, like back in like 1990 or something like that. But we just everybody used to give their Mac a name, and and um, so Jonathan would have been he would have been in high school then, and so I think when he went to university, we bought him a classic, a Mac Classic when they first came out, right? Huh. Um, and he named it Felix, right mm-hmm. after Felix the Cat cartoon. Um, yeah, and and you know so. Tim, do you remember the moose? Talking moose, yeah. 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 The talking moose. And it sounded like a Canadian, right? Which is why we've, we've officially adopted here in Canada. So um, it's it's gone. I have the software somewhere, but I've, I could dig out my one of my old Macs and see if I can fire it up. But I was sad when the moose stopped working on on, um, on Apple. So that actually became a, a term when we were in, when I was in college. Uh, basically a, a verb to moose someone. Really? To, yeah, to when they were busy doing something to kind of get in their way and interrupt them and prevent them from doing what they needed to do was was to moose someone and that had to do with the the talking moose right. reading your all your control Cause, panels because remember the, the moose would just pop up at random times yeah and yeah. and you, you know you'd be working on something and this moose would pop up and take over your screen for a second and and annoy you usually annoyed you yeah there, well there was a there was um, a technology in, in classic mac called macintalk which was the speech synthesis right, right? i remember and, that yep and they, that, they had that on day one that's when the mac sort of said hello i'm macintosh on when steve jobs announced it. that was the, the software they wrote for that and mm-hmm. so what the talking moose did was it gave a voice to the Macintosh and and apparently people said that the accent it seemed to have sounded like Canadian which is why so that we've we've adopted the talking moose and well, on our way you know how you have it mm-hmm. huh it makes sense you know if you're going to be a moose you're probably from Canada yeah and, and maybe the author did that that way I've, I should probably look into it we'll find something some notes and put it in the show I have the icon somewhere of the talking moose because um, I because I've even put it on our Slack on the um, on the Raywinder like Slack whenever we have to have a Canadian reference, you know, it's kind of boring just to throw the Canadian flag in there. Well, sometimes we'll put a hockey stick in or a moose or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not spelled with a U, though. No, no, that's true. <laughs> that's the 
that's that would be dessert. a mouse. <laughs> oh, or, or the dessert, right? If it's two. Oh, wait, wait no, mousse. moose has a, one S, right? But uh, but I think the dessert has two S's. I think moose chocolate it's, moose is spelled O M O U S S E, right? Right, two S's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah but that's yeah. that's a, the French word for for I don't know whipped what whipped chocolate or something. I don't know. Yep. As opposed to the big giant mooses that uh, you know chase or chase us around in the forest here. So like Bullwinkle. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny they're not they're not nothing to be reckoned with. I mean, they're they're larger than a Honda Civic, right? And mm. they're they're bigger than like they're way bigger than cows. They're like they're probably like six or seven feet tall. If you see one on the road, you basically stop your car and wait till it decides you can go. Because mm. <laughs> they're, they're not good tempered, right? Um, well, especially not the young males, right? The young males will yeah. challenge anything, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. I seen I seen a couple of moose on the road, like you know, driving back from down east where my uh, sister in law lives, and what do you think of Google I/O? Did you go? You, you went to the remote version of that? Yeah, the remote version. Uh, the remote version was okay. I feel like it was a little bit smaller in scope than in previous years. Um, yeah, but the the keynote content was good. Um, like the duplex stuff was amazing. That's the voiceovers. The voice. Uh, what do you call it? The um, AI voice stuff. Yeah, where it can perform tasks for you. Phone calls yeah. in particular. Friend and I at the Google I/O extended, we giggled when they showed the the gesture-based stuff. That's uh, for Android, Android P. That's mm-hmm. really very, very close to what the iPhone 10 does. That you oh the, the thing with the home button or whatever. Yeah, the little stick that you can you know swipe up to go home. You can bring up your multitasking, um, swipe left and right to go between apps or to, you know the multitasking. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Um, I told them I wasn't going to be able to control myself if they uh, if they showed notch support at the keynote. Which they they didn't probably wisely so. Um, they probably ended up in some of the afternoon stuff, like oh, what's new in Android, whatever version P is. Uh, uh, I'm yeah. sure they talked about it there, and it was probably like a one one bullet point, but it didn't make the the, the keynote in terms of uh, importance. Right. So they they do like a platform state of the union after the keynote as well. Like, do they dive right into stuff or not? I think they'd go into sessions after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little different in that Google I/O is leans a little bit more developer focused in its keynote than does um, WWDC. Oh yeah, it's, WWDC has like the marketing keynote and then it has the platform state of the union. Right. But at le- very least, um, we're not the attendees at Microsoft Build, which was a three and a half hour keynote and had an exercise oh, break. In the oh, middle, yeah. yeah. I'm. Uh, I, I love how we can just look up stuff like this. So I, when we were talking about the um, the Mac history with Xerox and stuff, I was yeah. reminded of the 1999 TV movie Pirates of Silicon Valley. Oh yeah. And there's a quote in here from Bill Gates in a conversation with Steve Jobs that I love. So Steve Jobs is real unhappy because Windows has ripped off Mac. Yeah. yeah. And and here's the lengthy quote is from IMDb. Get real, would you? You and I are both like guys who had this rich neighbor, Xerox, who left the door wide open all the time, and you go sneaking in to steal a TV set. Only when you get there, you realize that I got there first. I got the loot, Steve, and you're yelling, that's not fair. I wanted to try and steal it first. You're too late. I love that scene. I remember that. Mm. Dramatized, of course. Yeah, yeah. Very heavily, but uh, it's fun. Apparently also not true. <laughs> uh, let's see, where was it? I just trying to remember where they that was. They don't have here, but I like the other one where I think Windows 3.1 has come out at this point and they're behind the, the stage somewhere talking and Steve Jobs says, you know, you know, we're better than you. And Bill Gates turns on and says, it doesn't matter, Steve. You don't get it. It doesn't matter. It's sort of a dramatic portrayal of the difference between Apple's philosophy versus Microsoft's. Wasn't it to Anthony Michael Hall and Noah Wiley? I can find you those answers right really there quickly the if I can click on the links fast enough. IMDb thing. Noah Wiley and Anthony Michael Hall. 
Yep. B. B. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like, you know, now that I've finished uh, Halt and Catch Fire, that whole series. Oh, you have a. It's okay. real clear that uh, Joe McMillan and Gordon Clark are intended to be Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak. Yeah. The relationship is exactly like that. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But who are who are the, the ladies in that show supposed to be? That, I feel really bad not knowing who Cameron Howe and, and Donna Clark are intended to be. I'm yeah. sure they're intended to be somebody. Yeah. Um, but I really don't know. And then you can see how each, like, each season, like, the company represents some real company that was out there as a competitor. Yeah. Like, uh, it, you know, you guys have seen the first season, right? So yep. Cardiff Electric is very clearly uh, compact. Um, yeah. And there's a really good Netflix special, like the Silicon Cowboys or something. I'll, I'll look it up and find it. Oh, yeah, yeah. On on Compact. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. It, it's yeah. great. Like, it, it was amazing. Like, yeah. the, the wild and crazy beginnings and, and success and downfall of that company. Yeah. yeah. I think I think even in Halt and Catch Fire, they do a proper um, reverse engineering too, right? Where they yeah, uh, yeah. They go they oh, go into the room, they have somebody write the documentation, then they fire the guy, and then they get somebody else to write it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that old one. Silicon yeah. Cowboys from 2016, available on Netflix. Yeah, I watched that one. That's good. A friend of mine had that that first uh, compact computer, the one that looked like a sewing machine with the keyboard on the bottom. Yeah, yeah, the luggable. Yeah. Yeah, he used to work at um, uh, Aldus, which which was then bought by Adobe, right? So yeah. Yeah, I recently took um, a bunch of old machines I had, you know, get them to be destroyed and properly recycled. Yeah. Because uh, there was an event that was occurring, and I'm very grumpy about people's opinions about laptops nowadays because of it. I already was, to be quite honest. Um, but there are people who will, you know, I, I caveat what I'm about to say because I'm like, I'm sure there are difficulties if you're, you know, like on the bus and standing on your feet, and, and it kind of makes sense to, you know, if a MacBook Air is available or a 13 inch is available, you, you might really care about each and every ounce. Mm-hmm. But I remember a time not that long ago in my life where I had what was my first laptop. Yeah. It was in, in like it's enormous. Like if yeah. if people are like, oh no, this 15 inch MacBook Pro 2017 model is just like oh it's too heavy it's my back. This would have know, yeah. broken those people in half. Yeah, no, the, right? fir- we, the 31st portable Mac was 16 pounds. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, my, a laptop wasn't, at all. <laughs> mine wasn't quite like that. But I oh, god, I should have taken a picture of it if I thought about this. I should have put it next to my my now six year old MacBook Pro and show like look see like this thing is one quarter the thickness. Mm-hmm. It is a bigger screen. It's a wide screen instead of a a, a square screen. That's how old that was. The um, what was the brand? I just looked at it. I think it was. I think it was an HP. Somebody made a, po- a po- uh, just as a digression here. Somebody made up an image on Twitter of it took like um, meat, like bologna and a banana, and uh, they made a, a portrait of a very famous American politician. <laughs> <laughs> Which one would that be? Uh, um, here, let me copy the tweet. He who shall not be named. Separately, as I close up my uh, notes app, I, I see that I had Ted Turner mode listed in my notes. Apparently, I was excited about the um, Google's Photos app. Can do things like, you know, oh, you've got a picture of your child, you know, desaturate the background, make it mm-hmm. black and white, mm-hmm. make the, the child pop in color. But I, they had the Ted Turner mode where you can take black and white original photos and colorize them. Right. Just like uh, Turner Classic Movie Channel would do. Right. So how can I find this story about Steve Jobs? Man, that's the problem with being on so many different systems, right? It could have been a Facebook link. It could have been a LinkedIn story. Could have been maybe it was LinkedIn. Yeah. While you're finding that, did you see um, not Bill Paxton? Oh my gosh, what? Bill Hader. I should know this. Hmm? He died, you know. Bill yes. Hader or Bill Paxton? Oh yeah, yes. Last year, right? Something like that. James Paxton. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> who the hell's that? The Mariners pitcher who no hitted the uh, Blue Jays. Hmm. 
Oh. Apparently the first Canadian pitcher to do that in Canada. Yeah. Or a new hitter. Oh, he was a Canadian pitcher? Well, he is a Canadian pitcher. But he's this just happened like two days ago. He's playing for the Mariners. He's pitching for the Mariners, though. Mm-hmm. And pitching against the Blue Jays in Toronto. Yeah. What do you know? Well, that's what that tweet was about, or that note you put in there was about. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you got to fight fire with fire, and then you got to fight Canadians with Canadians. Well, here's an, e- here's an interesting article that we didn't talk about in the show called Eight Ways the IMAC Changed Computing. It yeah, killed, it killed beige, the right? Uh, mm-hmm. It hit us with the I. It launched the internet wave. It introduced USB to the masses. Forgot about that. It killed the floppy drive. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. set standards for industrial design. Uh, it redeemed Steve Jobs, and it saved Apple. I'll put that in the show notes. Interesting. Yeah, I'd forgotten about the fact that their replacement for floppy stuff was going to be uh, some combination of internet and USB. Yeah. Yeah. So the USB, USB was huge. I mean, like, cause, like people are looking at it going, well, who's going to use USB? And that was the first time Apple started. I think it was like one of the first times Apple went to an interface that wasn't their own, right? Mind you, I guess they didn't invent SCSI, but, but FireWire was theirs, and the FireWire came after it. What am I saying? Because they had the ABD bus before that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, they used SCSI. They used IDE drives. That yeah. certainly wasn't something that uh, they developed. <clears throat> yeah. That's true. Yeah, my one of the desktop machines that I got rid of, um, you know, not everything. Well, one, none of its peripherals like keyboard or mouse were wireless to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but even their wired components were the very specific kind of outputs. Mm-hmm. So the back of this uh, Hewlett Packard were color coded. So your mouse was like green and you, you take the green, you line it up the green port. The keyboard was red. You take the red, you line it up with the red port. That was their, their usability fix for, mm-hmm. for what? Yo, who would know? There's just like this array of various ports on the back. Hmm. Um, and now it's like, if you even have those, they're, they're all USB. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my devices. Like, I do not have a machine that has um, like a disk drive, uh, removable disk drive system. Really? No no floppy, no CD, no yeah, DVD. See, I ha- still have a super drive because I still have a whole bunch of CDs to burn. But you have the, you have an external thing, right? It's not like inside yeah, yeah, of yeah. No, your yeah. desktop or inside of your laptop. Well, I mean, I have plenty of computers that here that have drives built in, but they're not plugged in currently or turned on. Mine just, mm-hmm. yeah, just collecting dust in your own personal computer history museum. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I have a original 128 Mac here and a 512. Yeah. I think the iMac, I'm pretty sure the iMac is at Thottage because what we do the iMac is we, um, the kids use it to watch DVDs when they're going to bed in the bedroom. It's just big fancy DVD player now. <laughs> <laughs> There's no internet. We don't have internet access at the cottage. You have to tether off our phones. Oh man, the the, the worst thing, because I had to go you know drive all this stuff to uh, a local park where they had the the big semi trucks that they were filling up with these recyclable things. My at the time top of the line twenty one inch monitor CRT, mind you, damn thing must have weighed like fifty pounds. It was so damn heavy. Mm-hmm. It was so difficult to get into my car. What's that, dude? The um, somebody stole my article on this system before. Some guy's fifty six and he's learning how to code. Lucky you. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you next talk time. Talk at you later. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.